Christians all over the world today have a, a recitation that they're saying, that they're echoing back and forth, you know, between them, right? So we talked a little bit on Friday about how ever since the beginning of the church, there's been repetition of gospel words, words that uh, communicate the good news of Jesus. The one we looked at on Friday was uh, that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These two things went hand in hand so much that the church would repeat them over and over and over to one another. There's there a hymn, there's confession, right, in the early church. We do this weekly, actually, at gospel, in the life of Gospel Life Church. As part of our liturgy, we say things to one another. We proclaim them to one another. So, every week, someone, as Lydia just did, reads the scriptures. They end by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond by saying, thanks be to God, right? And this confession that we have to one another, it helps us. It helps us to First of all, set our, our hearts on the reality that this is the word of the Lord, but it moves us to thankfulness, right? It moves us to a weekly repetition of reminding one another of the grace of God and his revelation to us. The fact that we serve a good God who's revealed himself to us on the pages of scripture. Well, all over um, the world today, Christians have some form of a recitation that they echo back and forth in which someone says, so again, some version of, he is risen, and people respond by saying, he is risen indeed, right? And, and so I bring that up, because at a couple of points this morning, in the sermon, I, wanna, I want us to participate in that way, all right? If you, if you hear me say, he is risen, in the sermon, feel free to respond back, talk back to me in that way. Um, but I also bring it up, because I think there's some confusion here. You know, I think there's a lot of people who, they're, maybe they're not familiar with Christianity, Maybe they're skeptical of the claims of Christianity. And there's a misconception that, you know, when, when Christians say he is risen, you know, he's risen indeed. When, when Christians have this kind of back and forth, when they gather together on Easter, when they gather, gather together on Good Friday, and we, we talked about this last week and on Friday night, but there's this sense of like, well, they're not, they don't really mean that someone resurrected. People, people don't just resurrect, right? So Christians must have a kind of like, it's a metaphor way of thinking that, like, it's a parable to kind of talk about how we don't need to fear death. Or that death is somehow something that we can kind of get beyond. And it's a nice story about how death is defeated, but, you know, Jesus died and I mean, he, didn't, he didn't actually rise. But no, actually, that's not the claim of, of the Christian church. Throughout history, for almost 2,000 years now, the confession of the church has been that Jesus actually, physically, literally, bodily, rose from the grave on Easter. This is the nature of our confession. It's historical, and there's a reason for it, and we see some of the reason for that even in the text that we look at this morning. So continuing in our, our reflection on the historical nature of, of our faith, let's recount the events of Easter Sunday. So near dawn on Sunday, and let's just go with the majority view in terms of when this could have happened, April 5th, A.D. 33, a group of women followers go to the tomb, maybe around 6 a.m. And their expectation is to find Jesus' body. This is important, right? Like, Jesus' followers don't go to the tomb anticipating finding it empty. Even less do they go to the tomb anticipating a resurrection. Nobody's expecting this, and that's not speculation on my part. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually tell us, they inform us, that this is the case. When, when, so when this group of women followers come to the tomb, um, they find it empty. They're distraught. They're fearful. 
You know, they, they think the body's been moved, taken without anyone telling them. The likely culprit would be the Romans who seized the body potentially. So when they find an empty tomb, they're distraught. What they encounter instead is an angel who tells them, He's not there, for he is risen. And it's interesting, right? Because those words are spoken to these women. Those words are spoken to the, to the disciples. But those words don't register yet. It's like Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, told his followers, I'm going to rise from the dead. And the words themselves, you know, they didn't register with his followers. The words of the angel, they don't register. So that when Mary sees this man walking in the garden, she assumes he's the gardener, not Jesus. And what does she tell him? Something along the lines of, you know, can you tell me where my Lord is? Not in a living way, but the body. Someone seems, appears to have moved him, and she encounters there the risen Christ. And so these group of women followers, the first to encounter the risen Christ, rush back to tell the other disciples, who also find the tomb empty and also eventually encounter the risen Christ. All of Jesus' disciples have these resurrection encounters, resurrection appearances, uh, of Jesus to them. And most historians today, even non-believing historians, acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth lived. His followers believed him to be God. He was crucified by the Romans and that his disciples claimed to have seen him risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. And that claim, that unswerving cl claim, that unswerving belief is what prompted the explosion of early Christianity across the Roman Empire. Right? Like, a metaphor couldn't have done that, couldn't have accomplished that. So, so how was it done? Because through the resurrection of Jesus, not only were the disciples finally able to hear him explain how the scriptures are summed up in him, as, as we saw last week, last Sunday and on Good Friday, not only was he able to walk alongside of Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and beginning with, all of, beginning with Moses and the, and the prophets, interpret to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself, telling them, look, all, the, all this in the Old Testament is about me. It's about what I came to do. Right? Not only was he able to show him how the scriptures pointed to him, but they were also able to see that everything that Jesus claimed, everything he claimed to accomplish at the cross, their redemption and forgiveness, their reconciliation with God by Jesus standing in their place, everything he claimed about who he was, God himself entered into human history, everything he claimed about the future in which he would come to return to make all things new, to raise them from the dead, the reality of their future hope, all of it must be true, because here he is, risen from the dead. Yes, he lived the life that we should have lived but failed to live. He lived perfectly before the Father. He died the death that you and I should have died as a result, as we talked about on Good Friday, in our place as our substitute, so that we could receive, be received by God. But now on Easter Sunday, he's risen into this promised new life that he holds out to believers, to those who believe, right? He's, he's risen. And, and, and so, right, we're confronted this morning with this question of, right, what do you do with Jesus? You can make all sorts of claims about Jesus Christ. You can, re you can reject him on all kinds of levels. But what do you do? I mean, what would you do? You follow Jesus. You listen to his teachings. You put your hope in him as the Messiah, the one who's come to rescue and save, but then he dies, and you don't understand you thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but then on the third day he rises from the dead. He's just standing there in front of you, risen in power and glory. I said a couple weeks ago that that changed everything for his earliest followers, especially for Paul, the author of Ephesians, who also becomes a witness of the resurrection on the Damascus Road. So Paul, also known by his Jewish name as Saul, is 
is on his way to murder, to imprison, to persecute Christians. And as he's on his way, he encounters the risen Christ. It changes everything for him. And, and we noted a couple weeks ago what New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says in his own debates about the historicity of the resurrection. He says, I, I guarantee you, if there had been a corpse in a tomb, he's saying like, he's responding to the idea of metaphor, right, that this is just a metaphor. He says, no, listen, I guarantee you, if there had been a corpse in a tomb or a body that could have been produced, the persecutor Saul would have never become the Apostle Paul, right? And, and in other words, all the first century authorities would have had to do uh, in order to put down any claim of Jesus' resurrection in a time when that was a real fear, Historians don't deny that, right? That's a real fear during the time of Jesus. The messianic expectation was at a fever pitch. The hatred of Roman oppression is at a fever pitch. A powder keg ready for a spark, Andreas Kostenberger, right? All, of, all, all they would have to do is go to the tomb in which Jesus was placed and produce the body. There's your Messiah, right? Doesn't look like he can help you too much today. He's, he's too dead they didn't do that. They didn't do that, right? Why? Because the tomb was empty. It remains empty. And not only is the tomb empty, but the followers of Jesus collectively by the hundreds encounter the risen Christ, including Paul himself, who now becomes an avid follower of Jesus, willing to give everything, everything for him. Not by way of metaphor, right? Couldn't have accomplished this. And now he's riding to these predominantly Gentile believers in this region around Ephesus, those who were once far off from God, that they might see how what Jesus has done changed everything for him, for Paul, that, and can change everything for them too. And when we get to the end of chapter 1, Paul actually breaks out in thanksgiving and prayer for them. If you remember, uh, he spends the first half of Ephesians chapter 1 Spends the first half of that chapter talking about these spiritual blessings that God's given to them, right? These spiritual blessings that God possessed before the foundations of the world, for eternity past, that now he pours out on his people. And these blessings in Ephesians, they all have to do with who Jesus is and what he's done. They have to do with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So we're, we're preaching through Ephesians right now at Gospel Life Church. If you're, if you're new to us, this is a great time to get involved because we just started in Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians is a it's a great letter, you know, regardless of whether this is your first time coming into a church, one of your first times, or if, you know, you grew up in Christian churches. It's a great letter to talk through and to teach through because, uh, to read and to study, because here we actually have a letter that's primarily all about what it means to be a Christian. That's essentially what Ephesians is, right? And we talked a little bit about this on Friday night, but there are skeptics who say, you know, I've heard about Christianity and I reject it. Or there are those who even grew up from within the Christian church and they say, I'm walking away from my faith. I'm abandoning it. I'm deconstructing it. I'm changing some of the core beliefs to fit with, with the world around me, right? Then there are others who believe it and maybe they're not necessarily even sure why. But, but as I sit across, I mean, this has been true at Gospel Life for the last five years. As I sit across from people who tell me that they're walking away from their faith or that they've abandoned their faith or they've rejected the gospel, They've rejected Christianity. I'll ask them, what do you mean by Christianity? And oftentimes, the explanation that I receive, actually, it's not Christianity according to the Bible. 
Right? So it's really useful for us to open a book that's all about what it means to be a Christian, in which the first half is all about what God has done in Jesus, right? The basis of our faith, like what it is that saves us. The second half of the book is, therefore, on the basis of that work, here's how it changes us, here's how it shapes us, right? And um, so... Here we see this. Here we, we, we looked last week at four aspects of this gospel, this good news of Jesus. That it came about by God's mercy and grace, that it was accomplished through the cross. That everything in the scriptures point forward to it. It grants believers hope and assurance. And now we get to verse 15. After all that, after unpacking this gospel, Paul can't help but now give thanks and pray for the believers who are reading this letter. And we actually see three parts of Paul's prayer in this set of verses that confront us with the living Jesus. Like, they tell us, what's, it th- what's behind Christianity? Like, if you reject Christianity, what is it that you ultimately have to reject? If you walk away from your faith, what is it that you're walking away from? So three parts of this prayer, we see first the context. What stirs Paul to pray to begin with? Like, why is he praying? Then the content of the prayer, what is it actually that Paul prays for? And then finally, the core of the prayer, the center of it. Like, what's the source? Everything that Paul prays here, what is it that makes it possible? So that's our outline, because it's Paul's outline. The context, the content, and the core. So let's start with the context, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, here we see the context of Paul's prayer. And here's the context. It's the reality of their faith. What is it that that stirs Paul to pray? It's the reality of their faith. Paul gives the reason that he's moved to pray for them so often. The text begins, for this reason. In other words, because of everything that he said up to this point in verses 3 through 14. Because they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they might be holy and blameless before him. Because they were adopted as Sons in Jesus Christ, because they've been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus, the events of Good Friday that made our reconciliation with God possible, because he's made known to them the gospel, now that they can finally, you know, no longer are we muggles who are unaware of the spiritual realities all around us, but we can see and hear and believe, right? And so he gives Thanks, right? Paul says, listen, in light of everything I've written about these spiritual blessings that Christians receive in Christ, this gospel, this good news, when I heard about your faith, in other words, when I heard that you heard this gospel and you received it, you threw yourself on the mercies of Christ, you stopped trusting in yourself and other things to save you, and not only that, but, right, I I have evidence of the fact that you have this kind of saving faith, because you don't just make a claim of faith in Jesus, but you love others. You love, you love the saints, right? When I heard about that, the love of God in, uh, in Christ is shaping you to love others. Your love toward all the saints. Of course I now give thanks because it means these spiritual blessings apply to you. Praise God, they're yours, Paul writes. You're believers in Jesus. So Paul writes that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them, remembering them in his prayers. That doesn't mean Paul never stops praying for them. It's a first century idiom. It's expressing that he, you know, whenever Paul prays, whether it's morning or afternoon or evening, he doesn't, he doesn't forget them. He remembers them often in his prayer. So that's the context of Paul's prayer, the reality of their faith and love. It moves, them to thanks, it moves Paul to thanksgiving in prayer. But what does he pray? This is the content. 
What is it specifically that Paul's praying for for these believers? Look at verses 17 through 19. Paul prays, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So here we essentially move from the context, the reality of their faith, to now the content, the revelation of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel. Essentially, Paul's prayer is that these believers would obtain more and more and more of an understanding of this gospel that has saved them. What it is and how it works itself out in the human heart. That their very lives can now look different. And remember, what's Paul praying? Like he's pointing back to a lot of what's already been said. Paul's already said that because of the work of Christ, though our foolish hearts were darkened, we weren't able to see the reality of the gospel. Now God has given believers all wisdom and insight in his spirit to understand, to believe. So now he prays for them. He prays that for them. Paul prays that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their heart enlightened, that they might know, that they might actually be able to see, that they would hear the words of even Paul as he writes this letter, and be able to see and understand the good news at the heart of them, that they might know. Know what? That they might know three realities of the gospel, this good news that he preaches. First of all, he prays that they might know the hope to which you've been called. That they might know the hope to which you've been called. I've quoted Tim Keller many times before related to this very thing. A couple of times as we preached through Revelation together. Pastor and author in New York City. But it's really in knowing deep down the hope you have as Christians that our lives really can be changed, right? So we talk a lot at Gospel Life Church about how it's the gospel that shapes and changes us, right? The gospel is actually at work in us. And one of the ways it's at work is that there's an aspect of the gospel that has to do with our future redemption. That's part of the gospel. Part of the good news of Jesus is that he's coming again to make all things new, beginning with you, right? But in the end, he's coming again. We have this future hope. Paul talks about throughout the scriptures, this future hope that we cling to And that changes. That future hope really does change us. It changes us to love one another well. If we really believe it, right, to give of ourselves to others, to have a right understanding of how we should interact in this world because of that hope that is to come, because we actually believe that to be the case. So Keller says something like this. I'm paraphrasing because I can never find where I first read it. But he says, what you believe about your future is the most formative thing about you, or something like, your believed-in future. And that's actually the definition of hope in the Bible. It's your believed-in future. It's not the way that you and I use hope, which is almost always something that we don't think is going to happen, but that we hope will, like the Cubs winning the World Series kind of a thing, where it's like, and I hope that happens this season, but really, let's be honest, right? Um, that's not the biblical context of hope. Biblical context of hope is a believed-in future. It's a certainty about what's coming that actually changes the way we live. So Keller says, What you believe about your future, your believed in future, is the most formative thing about you. And I think that's true and helpful, right? If you're you're here and you're not a Christian, your believed in future changes everything. It's the most formative thing about you. Changes the way you live. 
Like, all of us believe something about the future, and, th- and that actually changes how we live in the present. What we believe about what happens after death, what we believe the purpose of this life is. It's really hard to navigate in this world without having some kind of a set of answers to those questions. And, and actually, it changes us in a daily way, too. Like, what we believe about our future this week, this month, you know, our future into retirement. Those kinds of things change the way that we act. I can give you a daily example. Recently, I was planning to hang out with some people. They asked me if my kids have any food sensitivities. I was like, uh, well, some of them are sensitive to food, uh, pretty sensitive to food. And what I meant was not that they have an allergy, but this is a common parental struggle, right? I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Um, unless it's kid food, food can be a tough sell for kids, all right? So, so chicken, unless it's chicken tenders, right? Or chicken nuggets. Unless the chicken comes in nugget or tender form, man, kids don't like chicken, right? It's particularly challenging. They pick at the chicken. They push it around their plates. And so what do, what do we do as parents? We, we, we begin by asking, you know, repeatedly. The asking becomes more frequent. Then we're kind of pleading. You know, then we're bargaining. It's like we become some kind of weird food hostage negotiator halfway through the meal. And, and, and yet... There are times, there are times when I know that my kids are going to eat that chicken. And, and not, not, in, not even in tender or nugget form. They're going to eat the chicken. And I don't have to actually do anything. It's when Amy and I bring home a special dessert. Right? So our kids know you get dessert when you eat your food. Right? So maybe there's a pie from Betty's Pies after coming back from the North Shore. You know, with a fresh tub of vanilla ice cream. And you got one of Betty's Pies, you guys from Two Harbors, maybe donuts from Heights Bakery in Columbia Heights or something like that, right, Um, where we frequent on special, very special occasions. But there's these handful of very special occasion desserts that none of our kids would dare to miss. Like Amy walked in the door downstairs with our donuts for our Easter meal this afternoon, and there's like this collective gasp from the children, right? Like it's, oh, right? So what do I know today? I know they're going to eat their eggs, you know? Um, I, I know they're going to eat their chicken in that situation. Why? Because what they believe about their future actually changes their present reality. Even their attitudes are different as they eat, right? They almost seem like they like the chicken. No complaining, no whining. It's like only the joy of eating, right? It's very interesting. And that's because, that's because it's proof, right? That it's not your circumstances that control the way you live that shape your choices, right? And that's the mistake that we make. We think that it's your circumstances that shape the way you live, that if my circumstances were different, then my, you know, my actions would be different, my behaviors would be different. If I could just change my circumstances. But that's actually not true. It's not true. Like, what you believe about your future is ultimately how you handle your present. Anyone can endure any circumstances on the basis of a particular outcome, even if the circumstances contain chicken. But for us as believers, we have at our disposal... The greatest source of joy and strength, even in the midst of the most difficult hardships and circumstances. Like, the question is, like, where do you find your future hope? You know, even for those of us who are con- confessing believers in Jesus, really, where do we ultimately put our hope on a daily basis? What do you believe about your future? Does it free you to love, to live a life of selflessness, or does it ultimately really enslave you to a life of purposelessness? It's a real question that the text addresses, but it addresses it by saying, look, the hope that you have in Jesus 
is incomparable to all other future hopes. It can and does shape the way that we live now, and this is true in multiple ways, and it's true for a specific reason that we're going to get to at the end of the, the chapter. So the Apostle Paul prays that these believers would know the hope to which they've been called. It's life-altering hope. What else does he pray for them to know? Secondly, second gospel reality. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And you know, I don't think Paul says this because he wants believers to evaluate what they've received. Like I think there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which people see Christianity as like a transactional thing, right? People wrongly see Christianity as transaction. That it's like a cost-benefit analysis. That you see the gospel or that you hear about a, some kind of a, uh, evangelistic presentation and you, you think, okay, well, is this worth, okay, that's, that's what's being offered. Is this worth me giving my life for? And, and like a lot of times the way it comes across is that we fo- what, what we really are saying is we want the stuff that Jesus offers us, but we don't want Jesus. Paul, though, his, his approach is different. Yeah, he does want you to evaluate what we receive in Jesus, but what we receive in Jesus is Jesus. Like, he wants them to know how God thinks about them in Christ, the acceptance and love that they receive in him for all eternity that changes everything. So um, we see that. So last week, I said, I wish to have more time to unpack this phrase in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, because it's interesting. This verb, obtained, it's usually, uh, it's, it's passive here, right? And I, I think it, it's usually translated some form of like, in him we've obtained an inheritance, right? But it's passive, and I think it's more passive than that. I think it actually should possibly be translated something more like, we've been obtained as an inheritance. And grammatically, that's like, that would be like the true passive way of translating And we see more evidence of that kind of inheritance here at the end of verse 18. Because Paul now talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance. Right? So it doesn't say our inheritance in him. It doesn't even say his inheritance that he grants to the saints. The text says his glorious inheritance in the saints. God's glorious inheritance. His treasure. I'm not sure if we really grasp the power of this statement in terms of what Jesus is holding out to you in this. Like the kind of acceptance and love that you have in Christ for all eternity without this. It's like, think about Jeff Bezos. Founder of Amazon, if you don't know who he is. He's worth $176 billion. But that only makes him the second richest man in the world. Because Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, CEO of Tesla, has passed him up. And you know, Musk got bored recently, decided... Just going to buy Twitter? Haven't we all kind of reached that decision? So he reached down between the cushions of his couch, pulled out the $43 billion uh, that he needed to, to, make a, to make a claim on Twitter, to make a, a, an offer. All right, so imagine being in a position where you had to get Elon Musk a present, you know? You had to give him a gift. Like, what are you going to get this guy? Right? Like, what are you going to get a guy who buys Twitter on a whim? Right? For 43 billion. What present am I going to be able to get him that he, he would treasure or love or call or consider his inheritance? More than that, like imagine Elon Musk receiving an inheritance right now. Whose inheritance is he possibly going to really care very much about? Okay, but, but okay, now let's take it a step further. Let's acknowledge for a minute that the reality that while on an earthly scale, guys like Musk and Bezos, they seem to have so much. They possess so much. 
They have nothing. They possess, the truth is, they possess nothing in comparison to an almighty God. Right? Like everything that they have really belongs to him anyway. You know, like if, if an almighty, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God exists, if he created everything that is not him, then he by nature possesses infinitely more than any other person could possibly acquire on the earth. You know, like the, the gap financially between me and Elon Musk, sure, it's considerable. Um, but it's not even close. It's not even a fraction. It's not even close to the gap between Elon Musk and an almighty God because everything that he has, moth and rust will destroy. Everything that he has is going to come to ruin anyway. Right? There's no comparison. And so, listen, listen to this. So if an almighty God exists, he created everything, then he possesses infinitely more than anyone else. And yet, this text tells us he has an inheritance in which he finds joy. He has, he has something that's a treasured possession to the point that he calls it an, an inheritance. Right? What is the riches? Riches. He considers it riches. What is that inheritance? It's the saints. It's us. It's believers. And so part of Paul's prayer here is that these believers would really understand the degree to which they're loved in Christ, accepted in Christ, treasured by God. In him, we've been obtained as an inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Where do you find acceptance? You know, social media is a barren wasteland when it comes to finding acceptance, but a lot of people turn there. It conditions you to find acceptance via likes and lo- like, right? They say that Facebook and Twitter, they borrow from, from casinos and um, a lot of gambling sites in terms of like how to like snatch you in. How do they do that? Well, through these like and love buttons that gives you like this little endorphin rush every single time you see that. You know, so you're checking every five minutes to see someone likes my post. Someone loved my, why? Because we're clamoring for acceptance and love. But the acceptance and love that the world offers us is just empty. People will fail you, but in Christ, you are God's inheritance, considered riches to him, right? And, and that brings us to the third reality that he wants them to know, verse 19, third gospel reality. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, right? Because this immeasurable, powerful God who takes delight in us as his inheritance is given this kind, this kind of power. Like Paul's about to tell us the source of it, where it comes from. This is where we go from the context of the prayer, the reality of their faith, the content of their prayer, the revelation of the gospel, to now the core of Paul's prayer, which is the resurrected Jesus, starting in verse 19. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So remember this, this preposition, according to, it means two things simultaneously. We talked about it on Friday night because we saw this in this text, according to the riches of his grace, right? So it's doing two things. It's saying, here we see the reality that governs over everything. So like the, Paul will say elsewhere, the grace of God reigns over you. So it's according to it. It's the norm that governs whatever he's talking about. It's also the reason for it. It's the cause of it. So grammatically for Paul here, the resurrection of Jesus governs over these things and is actually the reason they can receive it. How? Well, as Paul says elsewhere, everything written in these five verses 
is crucial to the Christian faith in that if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus is just another failed Messiah figure. That's the reality. Like, if the resurrection didn't actually take place, then we gather together to remember another failed, another in a long line of failed Messiah figures. Someone who came, claimed to be the one God, you know, to rescue God's people, but ultimately died and faded away into obscurity. And like with any one of those, right, we could, someone could make up some fancy metaphor for why they, sure they died, but they're really still alive. You know, it's allegory. But that didn't last for any of them, right? Because it's not powerful. There's no power there. For Jesus, he was actually resurrected. Paul says, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, that if it didn't happen, we're still in our sins. Instead, though, by his resurrection, demonstrating God's power, presently seated at the right hand of God, Jesus demonstrated that everything accomplished at the cross is true. Everything we, we talked about in our, our redemption, the forgiveness of sins that we looked at on Friday night, all of that is true. That he truly is above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, even Bezos and Musk, in every age. He stands as the authority over everything and is our collective head as the church, something we're going to look at more deeply in chapter 2. And as we said before, this power changed things for Paul and the apostles. Man, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, in discussing the power of the resurrection for the apostles, says this. He says, Jesus was declared says the Apostle Paul, to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It was that which finally, it was that, it was that resurrection that finally convinced these men. It was that which finally proved that he was the Son of God. It was that reason why they went around, as recorded in the book of Acts, preaching Jesus as the resurrection, the resurrection that proclaimed him to be the Son of God and therefore the Messiah and Savior of the world. And he goes further. He says, furthermore, there is his appearance to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus as one born of due time to give Saul, who would become Paul, the evidence that made him an apostle and made him proclaim the Son of God as Savior to the world, Jesus, the Son of God. Friends, this resurrection, you know, it's not just some parable. It's not just some metaphor. If it were metaphor, it's meaningless. It's reality. It's history. It turned the world upside down in the first century. It continues to do so today. Why? Because Jesus is standing there risen. I said that, you know, here we see this prayer, and every aspect of Paul's prayer confronts us with the risen Christ, with who Jesus is. And it asks the question, what do you do about Jesus? I'd encourage you, read N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Read one of the printed debates between a guy like William Lane Craig and Gerd Ludman on the history of the resurrection, as they, they both debate, Gerd Ludman thinking it's more metaphor, right? Didn't happen in history. William Lane Craig saying it's historical. Read those, like the arguments are cogent, and I have to say, read them alongside of the scriptures, because here's what happens. This informs us in a certain way because we can say what we want to about Jesus, but if he's standing there risen, what do you do with him? That was the, this is why it exploded in the first century. If Jesus is standing there risen, what do you do? Not, not only is he standing there risen, but he's offering you a life-altering future hope, a depth of acceptance and love for you that he expresses in terms of his inheritance. A depth of love that, by the way, was verified at the cross, his coming to die for us an immeasurable greatness of power toward all who believe. And it's true. It's true. Jesus died for you on Good Friday, took your place at the cross, bearing 
your weight of guilt and sin that you deserve, that you might live. And he rose again in power on Easter Sunday that you might have life in him because he is risen.